Welcome to A View from the Ditch. It's 5.30pm on a Saturday evening, and I hope you're relaxed and sitting down to listen to myself, James Larkin, my co-host, William Dalton, and a special guest today, friend of the show, Barry Kearney. How are you doing, guys? Oh, it's nice to be back. William, how are you getting on? Getting on grand now. Oh, good, yeah. Um, Barry is here to talk later about uh, some of his work in the area of cooperatives. Barry's uh, studying this area um, along with being a policy advisor in Leinster House. But first of all, we're going to uh, shoot the breeze as it were about the the week's politics. Uh, William, have you a few issues that you'd like to discuss? Well, one of the major stories of the last week was the tarnish to Leo Varadkar's error in relation to Protestants in Sinn Féin. He claimed that no Sinn, uh, senior politicians in Sinn Féin were Protestant, and uh, the T- Claire TD, Violet Ann Wynne, <laughs> responded on Twitter uh, to inform him that she is indeed Protestant and is proud to be a Sinn Féin representative. Um, how did that po- even come up? How, how did it come up? Yeah. It, it came uh, off the back of, a, of an advertisement campaign by Sinn Féin in America, Washington Post, oh, yeah. uh, where they were calling for greater support for United Ireland and a border poll. And Leo essentially came out and said that uh, that uh, it would be nothing but a, a sectarian headcount, a border poll, which is ironic because that's essentially what he was doing when he was counting the number of Protestants <laughs> in, in Sinn Féin. Yes, mis- miscounting them as it turned out. He said, so he, he, called, he apologised and he said, uh, quote, I was unaware of her religious affiliation, and I stand corrected. I fully retract my remark, and I apologise for any offence caused. Oh, the the for any for offence caused apology. Yes, the old non-apology apology. He was talking about yeah, the context of a speech where he said that they have a, a relationship with unionism that is mutually hostile, and that they're sectarian and anti-British. Um, that 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 was the. The speech in which he made the remark about there being no senior Protestant politicians, but but as you say, Barry, he's ended up making cre- creating a sectarian issue himself. Mm. And and it's also just like saying that the relationship with unionism is mutually hostile is not true, and it goes back to that laziness you see sometimes in the media that oh they're just as bad as one another up the north, and that's why politics came to a stalemate for so many years. When if you actually address the issues in the north and you know the southern state has seen how difficult it has been to work with the DUP on issues like uh, cross-border uh, cooperation on data and the vaccinations that the, the United Ireland that Sinn Féin are proposing is certainly in my, in my view not a hostile one it's an inclusive one and this, this sort of talk actually doesn't help any progress towards the United Ireland uh, and it's uh, it's just a complete ignorance of Republican politics that you see quite a lot in Irish media and, and in the doll uh, by other TDs, a very shallow understanding of, of the conflict. And also just this idea that being a Republican is, is tied to being a Catholic. Yes. You know, that, that really underpins a lot of people's interpretation of the conflict that it was, that it was the, the IRA were carrying out a, a campaign of Catholics versus Protestants. That, that seems to be the, the poor understanding of, of the conflict that some people have rather than it being, uh, you know, a campaign of, of Republicans versus those who supported uh, maintaining the, you know, uh, the the the, uh, the uh, sectarian state uh, through through the unionist ideology, and unfortunately, it's terrible to see that sort of thinking coming from a former Taoiseach and, and someone who will be Taoiseach again, most likely. Most likely, yes. Although uh, nothing nothing is certain, but I, I, we've mentioned on the program before how, yeah, the the conflict in the north is is usually only brought up in southern politics in the context of using it 
to attack Sinn Féin. And we've seen a fair bit of that from Fine Gael recently. Yeah, and then you'll also hear Fine Gael often, uh, you know, give out about Sinn Féin not being willing to, I suppose, engage down here. And then they'll start saying, uh, you know, look at what they're doing up there in the north. They're making a mess of everything. And it's like, well, you know, it's kind of a, a bit of a messy situation to have to uh, come up with policies with your opposite number. And it's also that sort of, you know, being, you know, Sinn Féin were told for many years to give up the gun and adopt the, the ballot box and enter politics down in the south and end abstentionism. And yet, you know, they've seen so much success uh, in the last general elections and still being uh, blacklisted by the main political parties in the south. So you're told to get involved in politics and you're told we actually won't deal with you and negotiate with you or even meet with you to discuss a programme for government in the South and then got and tell us to work with the DUP in the North, but that hypocritical nature where they won't deal with us down here in the South. Well, at the risk of uh, agreeing with Leo Varadkar, well, at least partially, um, you know, there, you'd have to say there is a certain element of sectarianism in Sinn Féin. Uh, you know, politics in the North is divided on sectarian lines and uh, Violet Unwin is perhaps the exception that proves the rule. Like I, I, I certainly agree that you have to be very careful and very sensitive on these issues. And sometimes when it comes to commemorations and when it comes to uh, centenaries and anniversaries, perhaps things could be dealt with better. Uh, however, like there are areas also to improve on in terms of uh, sectarian divides in the North. You look at education, you look at segregated housing in the States. There's lots of ways in which Sinn Féin could perhaps be doing more to try and break down a lot of those barriers. Uh, however, you, you try and go about it the right way and uh, through the border poll, it's just one way to try and get a grasp of where exactly do people stand on the issue. You know, it's, it's, been, it's been over 20 years now since the Good Friday Agreement. It's, is it not about time that you started opening up that discussion and seeing what sort of society do people want to have moving forward? Yeah, uh, yeah and also the whole idea that it's a sectarian headcount, like even if it is a sectarian headcount, which I don't necessarily agree with, the idea that we should just remain with the status quo because people might vote along sectarian lines is, you know, doesn't make any sense. Like, sure, then they wouldn't even have any parliament up the north because, uh, you know, people vote along sectarian lines. So, so surely, you know, a general election is a sectarian headcount as well, by his logic. Well, and Varadkar himself says that he shares the aspiration uh, of a united Ireland. Didn't he once describe um, them having a, a, an overseas office in Belfast? That's right. Well, I've always thought it, it um, curious that in this country, the minister responsible for Northern Ireland is the minister for foreign affairs. Um, you know, it, it, it's not a foreign affair entirely, is it? More of a family affair, huh? It bring, that brings us on to a remark made by Leo Bradker where he said that <laughs> it's wrong to label Fine Gael a Conservative Party, which I think will be a surprise to a lot of Fine Gael members, um, like the ones who attended the that Republican conference in the United States, for example, young Fine Gael members. Okay. Um, he was talking about how his party have played, quote, a crucial role in advancing equality and in particular gender equality in Ireland. And that he says... We're not a conservative party. We are one that, quote, is at last, at least for the last few decades, economically and socially liberal. Um, and that the conservative label comes from, quote, our friends on the left who don't like us. Now, I just wanted to address this because in case people have forgotten, I know, I think, I assume in terms of gender equality, he's talking about things like the re repeal the eighth campaign, which. And the marriage referendum. Uh, and the marriage referendum, which in relation to repeal the eighth, in case people have forgotten, Fine Gael were split on that issue and they remained neutral. They didn't campaign for repeal, even though they were in government at the time. And the yeah, like, previous leader quite, of the party, sorry, go on. I just think it's quite obvious that he's just trying to, you know, go uh, this third way kind of thing, you know, except from the conservative side of things, as opposed to the um, uh, left. You know, it's very clear he's just trying to uh, sanitize his party in order to get as many votes as possible. Well, I also seem to recall Michael Noonan at one point, again, on the charge of conservatism, he said, well, Sinn Féin are the most conservative party in the Dáil. So, yes, it, it is a, there is, does seem to be a kind of triangulation going on.
But it is true that uh, Finn Gael, in many ways, have if you previously saw them as the you know Conservative Party on economics and social issues, they perhaps saw an opportunity to increase their vote share by not conceding on the economic Conservative policies, but conceding or perhaps moving or softening on the, the social ones, which why they gave a conscience vote on, on a few of those issues. Uh, but I think they're also trying to copy what's been done with the Tories in Britain, which is they don't want to come across as the nasty party to the public. They, they, don't, they want to get rid of that tag. And they probably see the death of Fianna Fáil coming, especially in the polls, <clears throat> and say, how do we eat into that vote? And you, you'd have a lot of people in Fianna Fáil who see themselves as being in the centre, or as Niall Collins said a couple of months ago, we're the centre-left. <laughs> you know? yeah. So maybe they maybe see it as a strategy to try and attract some of those votes. And it, it would make you think, uh, I wonder, like what happens with a lot of parties is when you, know, you move like that, then someone catches you out from the right. Uh, so someone moves into that space, whether it be, uh, I don't know, Renewa, uh, Aintu from a social conservative point of view. Maybe Fianna Fáil will, you know, I don't know, do an L switcheroo and just uh, <laughs> come at them from behind. You see what I'm saying? Think... It seems like there's a space opening up there, especially with when you see the protests that was happening in, in the numbers of people uh, kind of being drawn to far right groups. Yes, and that kind of triangulation has, has always gone on in, in Irish politics. Uh, the, both, both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have operated on a kind of constructive ambiguity ideologically. And now Sinn Féin are doing the same. Another major story I wanted to address was this this one about, about Roy Greenslade, uh, the British journalist who... So in an article uh, in the British Journalism Review published at the end of last month, he disclosed his support for the provisional IRA going back decades. Now, he was known to be someone who supported... The Republican cause. Um, he was a Guardian media com- commentator for uh, the guts of 30 years. Uh, this made the news in an Irish context because there was a complaint by Maria Cahill about an article he had written back in 2014. People might have seen this uh, about a BBC uh, documentary about her uh, rape allegations. And he, he, uh, in, in his article, he was talking about the fact that it failed to disclose her political affiliations to dissident groups. And the, the, the then editor of The Guardian was Alan Rusbridger, who is now on Ireland's Future of Media Commission. And Maria Bailey was, or excuse me, Maria Cahill uh, was, was calling him for him to step down. Um, Maria Bailey was involved in that as well, wouldn't it? <laughs> sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, excuse that, that mistake. Uh, is it well did you mention there that he also wrote front footblocked under a pseudonym yeah so he, he greenslade was writing for the Sinn Féin paper on footblocked under under the pseudonym george king which he says interesting is that kind of an ironic uh, pseudonym he says it was a reversal of king george that's where that's where the nom de plume came from and um it's a fascinating art so i went back and read that article in which he, uh, in his own phrase, he he comes out of hiding. Um, it's it's entitled "What I Did in the War," and he talks about. Essentially, he explains why he didn't disclose those sympathies. I mean, it's fairly obvious why why a British journalist wouldn't disclose his support for the IRA. This is a guy who was you know he was editor of the Mirror. He was a senior editor at the Sunday Times. And the son. You say it was to make a living. At one in one, uh, not in that article, but elsewhere, I believe he said he, because he had a mortgage to pay. That was simple as that. And he, he says in the article, uh, essentially, he announces that he was his support for armed force republicanism. It was no secret that he that he had republican sympathies, and it had been reported uh, in a book uh, in two thousand and eight by by. A journalist called Nick Davis, but but it's hard not to see him as taking advantage. Like maybe that wasn't the this isn't the explicit reason he, he did what he did, but it's hard not to see him as taking advantage of his, uh, I suppose, the appearance of not being a member or a big supporter of um, Sinn Fein in those years, and then uh, commenting on matters that directly affect 
uh, you know, Sinn Féin, like the, the Maria Cahill example. Well, like, in that, that, that seems like a moral grey area to, to. So, so that certainly is Alan Rusperger's view, and he came out and apologised to Maria Cahill, and he said, but he stressed that Greenslade was not writing editorials on the North, and that he was he was strictly a media commentator. Um, but but Rusperger said, given what he has now shared, I believe he should have should have avoided those topics, meaning the North, especially as the Guardian's own guidelines have long been explicit about declaring interests. Or at least declared your interest when writing them. He says here, yeah, and he, he goes on to say, Rusperger, the piece spectacularly fails on transparency grounds. And, and essentially he makes the point that it was hypocritical at best of Greenslade to criticise the BBC programme for lack of transparency about Cahill's political affiliations when he had these political affiliations that he wasn't disclosing. Yeah. Um, and But he says, again, just to come back to Greenslade's own, own article, he says, um, I did, quote, I did not feel compromised when I became editor of the Daily Mirror in 1990 because it was the only mainstream newspaper to have consistently urged the removal of British troops from the north of Ireland. I do not regard it as dishonest to have written covertly in opposition to the editorial stance of the papers for, for which I worked. It was sensible and pragmatic. In a sense, I guess I employed what might be called journalistic entryism, working as required by employers while holding polar opposite political views that were they to have been known would inevitably have led to me not only being fired, but also being unemployable thereafter. So that's what I mean. It's, it's a, fan, a fascinatingly open uh, piece by Greenslade, and as he says, it's it's now, now that he's retired uh, as as a full time journalist that he feels feels able to say this, and uh, he he also says he's he's now a member of Sinn Féin. And I guess you can see how, like, I think you know, Alan Rusbridger is perhaps uh, getting unfairly criticized to a certain extent like you know it seems like a load of different editors were kind of caught out caught on the hop in this one and he's getting essentially mired in in uh essentially in politi- in politics in ireland where you know it's politically advantageous for certain parties to go after anyone associated with Sinn Féin well I saw Leo Varadkar describe Greenslade as an agent of Sinn Féin the press which I, I don't think is accurate you know like all other Irish parties have certain or most have certain journalists who are supportive of them and don't necessarily declare it. You know, there's no there's no allegation that he was a paid agent of the party. No, yeah, it's it's a complicated one. Yeah, because there's no everyone has ideologies, you know, which inform all parts of their work. Um, and like if you try to declare interests on everything, it would get absolutely crazy. And he wasn't a member, and he wasn't paid by them. He was just supportive by of, of them. The issue is writing. Like, you know, if if Pat Leahy was. Uh, just picking a name off the top of my head. If Pat Leahy was, um, you know, writing under a pseudonym for, uh, or, or doing PR work for uh, Fine Gael under a pseudonym, I think we'd have big problems with that. Oh, I see what you mean. Uh, yeah, right. Writing under a pseudonym. Uh, yeah, he, the argument you can. I I've quoted you there. The argument he make, he makes in defence of that. I know, but but it doesn't mean just because there's there is a defence of it doesn't mean uh, it's not, you know, it's on at least a moral grey area or if not, you know, partially kind of wrong. Yeah, one important difference there is that, and again, I you give the hypothetical example of Pat Lee, but Pat Lee, he is an Irish journalist writing about Irish politics. Greenslade was a British journalist who was not directly covering the North. He was a media commentator. But he was, yeah, media, like, yeah, but... You know, you're, you're not directly covering the North. Okay, I can give you another example where they're not directly covering it, but they start weighing in on issues that are affecting British po- or Northern Ireland politics. You know, or Irish politics like that. I mean, Panorama investigation, I'm sure, was very important at the time and was very important in the North and in Britain. Certainly, yes. And now I, uh, uh, no, I agree. It's deeply problematic. I just wanted to say, Greenslade in the article, he does make the point that his his politics. Even though he didn't declare his support for armed force republicanism, his politics weren't a secret. Like he mentions the fact that while he was working for the Sun in the 1980s, after the hunger strikes, he had a photograph of Bobby Sands above his desk and has had ever since. <laughs> um, and Jeez, he wasn't very good at hiding. No, well, he, he wasn't trying to hide. Uh, he no, he might. I'd say most people in that office didn't have a clue that what he looked. What Bobby uh, Sands no, looked no, like. No, James, no, no, James, no. They've only said, "Is that, is, is that your, is that no, your brother?" <laughs> 
no, no. They well, they might, they... He might have also passed on if it's a joke. Say, oh, look, Greenslade. Look at this. He's got a bloody Republican photo. This is mad, huh? In the sun. The old current bun. Um, and then he, he, but also in later years, he says that once he moved to the Guardian in 1992, he no longer felt he had to conceal his politics so much and kind of let it leak out over the years. And he did speak openly at Sinn Féin events over the years. So it is so. It, so the point I make is it wasn't entirely a secret what his politics were, and their journalists have political views. It's not as though they they are sort of no. But I think the big problem is writing under a, a pseudonym for you know the party publication. A party publication. What's what's your not? take on this, Barry? I look. I think it would make for a fascinating uh, thesis. You know, on, on, on a conflict <laughs> of interest or. or Something like that. Yeah, the great human aspect here is a man, you know, trying to look after his family financially and, and protect his own career in a, a very a heated conflict uh, where he feels that, uh, you know, there's a moral aspect to this in terms of what's going on in the North. And he wants to write on that and, and express, his, express his views. And he felt the most pragmatic thing to do was, was to use a pseudonym. Uh, he couldn't risk his, his, his you know, his livelihood uh, and his, his, his work at his current employment. And uh, there has to be room for that, you know. There has to be, you have to be realistic and accept that journalists uh, do uh, hold uh, ideological uh, uh, viewpoints and issues, and there has to be room for allowed people to express those opinions. Because otherwise, uh, you'll have you'll have a media that uh, perhaps uh, it will be in the pocket of political parties that they have future aspirations to work for, as we see in this country. Uh, you know, journalists moving on to be special advisors for key politicians. You have to give journalists some sort of protection in the roles that are cur- they're currently in and allow them to, to use pseudonyms or, or such to express uh, other views in other publications. Uh, but a very interesting uh, subject. Well, what if I was to tell you that, like, you know, a top uh, British uh, right-wing newspaper writer was also writing under pseudonym for Fine Gael and... and you know, also wanted to, but it felt that would undermine his, uh, although I don't think it would <laughs> undermine well, that's his it, you uh, see. career prospects. No, but let's just say if it did happen, if that came out, even if it did, he didn't say it would undermine his career prospects, he just said he was writing under pseudonym for Fine Gael. Mm. Who knows why he was doing it? You know, I think we'd be, if we'd be on the show again, this is mad. This is, this is ridiculous. This is a joke. It's a very uncomfortable space, but like if you look back at like uh, McCarthyism in, in America, and just the like, you had to put yourself back into those sort of contexts, similar to what was happening in Britain at, at that point in time as well. You can't express your your views or opinions on on real situations or you know of of you know of of this moral magnitude. Like you you would lose a job, you'd lose your livelihood, you would lose your connections. You would not only that, but your family would be vilified. You you'd have your life threatened, perhaps, uh, yeah. if people became aware of this. You have to allow people some sort of opportunity to, to express their views and issues that perhaps their own individual company uh, won't publish. Or, you know, uh, won't give them that opportunity to do so. A pseudonym seemed like an appropriate way to do that. Uh, he felt vindicated what he was doing. It didn't affect the organisation he was working for. Uh, but it's, it is a conflict of interest, and I'm not I, an expert in these areas, so I don't know what other say, ways they go about it. Yeah, as you say, I think it's 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 a kind of a thorny one ethically. Incidentally, um, so Maria Cahill came out and said she doesn't accept uh, Ross Bridger's apology, but the um, Commission of the Future of the Media said that he's, he's staying. So that is um, state of play at the moment.
Sorry, William. The other thing you wanted to talk about was uh, the Irish Times op-ed about the British Empire, which is, I know, was a favourite subject of yours. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on this. So on Wednesday, the Irish Times published an opinion piece by a guy called Nigel Bigger, who is um, Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at Oxford. Um, and he was essentially, uh, he, he was criticising Michael D. Higgins' view of the British Empire. And he said, among other things, he said, quote, if colonialists can other the natives, essentializing them into contemptible stereotypes, nationalists too can, quote, other the imperialists. So if you like, it's sort of, <laughs> he's sort of making an argument for what, what people sometimes call reverse racism here. And uh, a lot of historians um, have reacted with derision to this piece. Uh, Brian Handley, I see as a letter, uh, Liam Hogan, the excellent Liam Hogan on Twitter, um, sort of mocking the, these arguments. Um, but I was just uh, a little bit um, surprised that the Irish Times ran, ran this piece. Well, to play devil's advocate, like you, I, I didn't actually, uh, I read Michael e. Higgins' piece and I don't think he was, you know, uh, stereotyping. But, you know, I think you probably can stereotype um, powerful groups uh, such as, I don't know, colonialists or, or um, the British government, the monarchy, etc., etc. Um, however, it's less problematic given their status as the powerful. Now, I'm not, I, don't know, I think the big problem is that Michael e. Higgins didn't really do any of that. Yeah, and the other well, so one of the points he Bigger makes in this article where he says uh, is about the Irish, um, the revival of the Irish language. He says, um, and he's talking about post-colonial theorists like Edward Said. He says, Said's claim that empire invariably involves cultural repression does not readily accommodate the fact that the renaissance of the Irish language and literature occurred within the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And I just want to quote, there's a letter in today's Irish Times, uh, excuse me, in, in, there was a letter in Friday's Irish Times responding to this idea, which says, quote, why would it need a renaissance if it wasn't suppressed in the first place? Has he ever heard of hedge schools? That was a letter from one Mike Canning. Um, but yeah. A pretty lame attempt there at uh, trying to win, score a few points for for the empire. Um, yeah, you know it's it, it's a good way to go about things because you start applying it to loads of things. You know, given how bad the empire was in the past, you know they kind of they gave us freedom as well. You could say really, you know that's a point in their favor, isn't it? Not by the same logic, they gave us our independence. Yes, well, it's a bit like saying that the anti-apartheid movement emerged under apartheid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, or that the French resistance emerged under Nazi occupation. I I, I realize I've just invoked Godwin's law there, but uh, anyway, we, we totally we can edit it. we can edit that out. Make a, com a completely there. ridiculous article, I, I thought, and uh, interesting that it was published the week of a massive controversy about the British monarchy. Well, speaking of the British monarchy, I've actually been thinking a lot about them over the last few weeks because I've been watching You and a lot, the Crown. lot many others, yeah. Oh, oh, I see. Go on, sorry. <laughs> I watched the first season of The Crown. And, dear, oh dear. You know, I've, I've uh, engaged in, in plenty of Crown bashing or monarchy bashing with you, you, you two over the years. And, but, but watching this, <laughs> watching this made me, you know, think of what it's like, you know, to be part of the monarchy, you know, understand their side. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I'm being serious. It really made because I, I just you know you just think of them as uh, you, know, you just think of the whole thing as absolutely ridiculous and not making any sense. But it kind of did start to make sense to me a little bit in that they they consider themselves kind of like essentially appointed by anointed by God uh, and yes. to be kind of a a religious connection to the Br British state. Uh, and I compare it to, you know, the Pope. Like, say if someone if someone came along to you and said, God, you know, it, like, I'm a, not God, but I'm a Catholic and, you know, I'm a big fan of the Pope. He, he's great. You'd be like, oh, oh, fair enough. Like, you know, you know, whatever you're having yourself. But then if someone came on along to you saying, oh, I'm, I'm a Brit and I love the Queen, 
you'd 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 be having none of it. Am I right in saying? So I think the problem with that argument is Britain is supposed to be a modern, inclusive democracy, not you know, and and yet you've just pointed out that the head of state is a religious <laughs> institution, is the head of the Church of England. So therefore, it's well, totally well, ex- exclusionary. Well, home rule is Rome rule, William. You know, we, are, <laughs> we weren't far we off that ourselves for a long while. Listen, you won't find any disagreement from me that the, the church had too much influence in this country. But nonetheless, we have come around to the to being a secular republic. Um, mm, and... Well, anyway, there's been a lot of... Constitution. I'm glad to see that there is a debate happening, uh, although I'm not sure, you know, because there, it, it never seems to be debated, the, the, um, the legitimacy of the monarchy in Britain. And it doesn't... The monarchy, I think it's important to point out, you know, although it's popular, it is still very popular in Britain. It's support, so popular, I can believe yeah, it. Yeah, but, it, but support for it is not universal among British people. And like I saw, there was a poll not that recently... A recent, well, no, it is far off. Like there was a poll there recently from Ipsos. And so the question was, do you think it would be better or worse for Britain if the monarchy was abolished? Now, 43% said it would be worse. And so that means a majority either thought it would be, were either hostile to the monarchy or indifferent. You know, which is well, which, which slightly contradicts the picture of... of universal support you know and and there are many british people who don't support the monarchy that's the point or are totally indifferent to it and the also that's in the context where they have overwhelmingly positive press coverage to the point of you know manufacturing consent and and you have you know this narrative that they're that the monarchy is good for tourism for which there's absolutely no evidence i think it's a totally bogus argument and the cost uh, to the public of the British monarchy, the annual cost is estimated at three hundred and forty-five million pounds. Um, and so, there's never what the point I'm making is: yes, there what is they a lot. Them is priceless, William. The, well, I'm saying yes, there is a lot of popular support, but it that's in the context where it's never actually debated. And the facts, you know, uh, the 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 costs and the the exclusionary nature of the institution and the racist nature of it, colonialist, etc., are never actually discussed. Uh, the racist nature of it, you know, the, the, the Crown leaves out the bit uh, about the fellow who abdicated in the 1930s, who was a big uh, Nazi. fan of the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. You're referring to Edward VIII. Yeah, for some reason it doesn't mention that. I'm not sure why. Yeah, he visited Hitler uh, in 1937 against the advice of the British government uh, and gave full Nazi salutes. You know, people might remember a few years ago there was a controversy because there was a video of um, the Queen Elizabeth when she was a very young child giving a Nazi salute. Uh, she was seven years old, I think, and it's in a picture with with her uncle, the man you're referring to there, Edward VIII, who was a Nazi supporter. And um, yeah, the, this debate is happening in the context of the uh, interview with Meghan Markle and... and uh, Harry, uh, with with Oprah, there was a, there was a very Which good. I believe you about... watched during the week, William. What, what did you make of the interview? So I'm. I didn't I'm... see it. I didn't see it personally. I assume you didn't either, Barry. No, no. What, what, what did you what... make of it, William? <laughs> so I I'm I'm I didn't plan to watch it. I just want oh, to say of course that. not. No. Just it just happened by accident. Two people two people in my house were watching it, and I was in the room. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh I yeah. Um, I mean, there were some interesting stuff about. It. Harry showed, uh, in my opinion, a surprising degree of insight about the relationship between the tabloid press and the monarchy and the, the sort of, um, you know, access in return for favourable coverage, etc. cetera. Uh, there was a very good article in the Irish Times by Patrick Frayne. A lot of people will have seen this. Patrick Frayne, who has been a guest on Quarantine FM, of course, on, uh, on Reader's Hour. And I just want to quote from Patrick Frayne. He's the lead from his article. He says... Having a monarchy next door is a little like having a neighbour who's really into clowns and has daubed their house with clown murals, displays clown dolls in each window, and has an insatiable desire to hear about and discuss clown-related news stories. More specifically, for the Irish, it's like having a neighbour who's really into clowns and also your grandfather was murdered by a clown. (laughs) 
Uh, as, as someone who was born in Scotland and grew up there and came over here, I've always been bemused by the fact that there's such a fascination amongst the Irish for the, for the British royal family. They were the weddings, you know, uh, the scandals, Diana, uh, and uh, the whole Harry Merkel, Meghan Merkel situation. It's just, it's each time it grips the nation, it grips your radio, it grips your TV, you, 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 you know, you purchase the rights to what they're showing, all the weddings, and it just, you got your independence. I don't know, understand why you're still hanging on. Yeah, the viewership figures for, uh, for, for the interview last Monday, which included William, we found out, um, was higher than the viewership figures for the All Ireland Hurling final. That'll <laughs> oh, <is that laughs> tell you a lot. Jesus. And then people were going mad on Joe Duffy saying he shouldn't have been on in the first place. It was probably the most profitable uh, show RTE's put on all year. Yeah, that's. Uh, no, I agree with it. you. I agree with you, Barry. And and yeah, generally, I wrote... you, why did you watch it then, William? Well, I agree. Listen, I'm not proud of it, and and I tend to ro- <laughs> I tend to roll my eyes at any, anything to do with. Uh, um, the, but, but it's kind of like you know, it's kind of like Floyd Mayweather. Love him or hate him, you're going to tune in. Yes, and may, you that's could add, the case of you, William. You are case in point. All right. Yes, I, I accept. <laughs> I, like I said, I'm not proud of it, but I, I did. But it, it's, it's funny as well because yeah. No, like, like, Barry, your people in Scotland. Sure, what are you talking about? Sure, they bloody love the Queen. Well, let me finish. I'll tell you <laughs> what I was going to say. It's it's funny because uh, you'll find socialists in Scotland. And England, good politics on loads of issues across the, you know, international conflicts and all the rest of it, and uh, and and uh, many different issues. But when it comes to the monarchy, a lot of them are, you know, ah, sure, listen, it's it, what harms it doing. We quite like it, and it's so the mental gymnastics that the monarchy creates. It's 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 very uh, it's very unusual, uh, and it's something that Corbyn had to be careful with when he was leader of Labour. He found a lot of pressure from people on the left, in particular, uh, yeah. to, to to sing the national anthem and and bow more uh, deeply, bow more deeply, and that sort of stuff. Oh, it's you know, and doesn't it reflect also though the weakness of not the not even the left but liberalism in Britain that the leaders of the centre left party can't even advocate for the abolition of the monarchy, like the idea that if anything he feels he needs to support it more so. Indeed. Anyway, that's a good. We we, we need to get on to uh, Barry's uh, what what we brought Barry here to discuss, which was uh, the cooperative movement in Ireland. Yeah, I think before that, we're going to have a, a brief uh, musical interlude. Barry Kearney isn't just here to uh, shoot the breeze with us about politics. He's also here to discuss some of the research he's conducting about the cooperative movement in, in Ireland. Um, so, Barry, thanks for coming to talk to us about some of the research you've been doing. Um, am I right in saying it's about uh, football clubs and the cooperative movement? Yes, that's an area that I'm very interested in. Uh, and it's an area, actually, I think that uh, people in Ireland should be much more proud of. Uh, it's actually an area in which you've made a lot of progress over the last uh, 15 years in particular. Do you mean uh, the cooperative movement in general or just in relation to football? In terms of football, uh, like people would be, would be aware of the fact that Ireland had previously done quite well in agriculture cooperatives, a lot, a lot of big ones that after, the, after you joined the EEC, unfortunately, sort of moved towards more commodity-based production and uh, sold out, some would say, uh, became limited <laughs> companies. But you also have a huge credit union uh, sector in Ireland, uh, which perhaps would have even flourished after the after the crash if it weren't for some legislation that was introduced to actually uh, ensure that, that they didn't prosper and that they, that your failed banks actually recovered. But the other sector which Ireland does quite well is uh, is football uh, cooperatives. So Shamrock Rovers, for example, uh, you've also got Dundalk, 
uh, Bohemians is, is similar to a cooperative. They are members trust. Uh, you've also got Shells. Uh, all of these uh, football clubs have involved their fans uh, on the basis One of... One time or another. Well, well for... Bose, Bose has always been a fan-owned organisation. Yes, Bose from, from day one has been a members own uh, club, is, is what they call it. Uh, it's not been under the, the cooperative uh, legislation. However, it's under the same principles. Now, if you take Cork, for example, uh, there was a trust established called Forest, and they were established just in the, the, the period of time uh, prior to uh, Cork uh, becoming and going to some financial crisis. Uh, and Forrest was there set up to actually intervene and save the club. Uh, and they did eventually take over the club after examinership and lead the club uh, for the next 10 years uh, to promotion and to the, you know, for the, the Premier Division title, uh, which was quite a major su success. And a number of other clubs uh, that are not yet cooperatives have fan-owned trusts that are there waiting to take over, but also there to give support to the the board that's currently in place through member involvement and governance in particular. So um, that's interesting. And, and can I just say, I'm so pleased that we're speaking about the League of Ireland on the programme for the first time. And I, I suggest possibly for the first time ever on this station. But I wanted to say, Barry, isn't it the case with in football that often when, when a supporters trust or the like will take over, that nonetheless, at a later point, particularly if the club becomes attractive to investors, they will just sell uh, to, to, to an investor and, you know, they'll, they'll make some money out of that and that'll be the end of the experiment in, in cooperative ownership. Yeah, it, unfortunately, like, uh, football is financially driven and uh, the trusts that are set up that eventually take over from some of these clubs uh, can be hijacked by what are some call are people who are not true believers in the concept of fan ownership. They simply see it as a vehicle through which to get a share of the club to then uh, sell on once, it, when, once the club becomes profitable again. Some people have thrown the accusation at Cork City Football Club. You know, the fans saved the club uh, in 2009-2010. They're now in the process of, of actually uh, handing over ownership. Uh, there's been a vote taken by the members to the handover ownership of our Cork City Football Club uh, because Cork has, also, has obviously had been hit by COVID. It's been hit uh, through their performance in the Premier Division and uh, they feel that that's the best for the club, but also perhaps best for themselves. Some fans uh, that perhaps weren't true believers from the start. Uh, from, from other people's point of view, you know, fans are, are the most important stakeholder in football, but yet their opinions are often ignored. You know, fans feel as though football clubs are becoming more and more distant. Like, if you take a look at the English Premier League today, you know, what are you even watching at that stage? A bunch of, you know, multi-millionaire footballers running around, you know, uh, tickets are, you know, sometimes 70, 80 quid to get into a game. Uh, you know, normal working-class football fans can't afford to go to matches and uh, we have to ensure that uh, Irish football is always accessible to fans. And also, fan involvement is good for governance of football clubs. It's good to keep uh, the board on their toes, to keep management uh, you know, accountable. We all know the scandals that have been involved in uh, Irish football over the years. Uh, it really isn't a, a, an industry that can, that can be left uh, uh, without fan involvement. Indeed. Well, I, I think it's, it's an example, isn't it, of a kind of a different, you know, social model you know it's a, a popular kind of mass um, institution like football and and some of these clubs that you've mentioned have shown that you can have member ownership and democratic ownership if you like um, I wonder how, how if you could speak about how, how you think that might be applicable in other sectors in Ireland well, like I, I might, uh, I, I'd like to see much more uh, worker cooperatives established in Ireland. You know, uh, worker co-ops are hugely prevalent in countries like Italy and France and Spain. We're actually now seeing a, a, a significant amount of worker co-ops in Scotland. Uh, 
uh, Nicola Sturgeon has committed to be actually being uh, the leading country in the world by 2030 and, and worker cooperatives. These are companies in which the workers all own one share of the company and have one vote in the company and any profits the company make, they either receive in dividends themselves or actually put back into the cooperative uh, in a long-term uh, individual reserve, which is used to uh, ensure that workers' wages are paid even in times of financial hardship. Uh, like John Lewis is a very famous uh, uh, company in Britain and Ireland, and that is a, an employee-owned company that runs in that model. Ireland basically has, has very few, I think there were 30 worker co-ops in Ireland the last time research was carried out. Other countries like Bologna and Italy, uh, the Emilia Romagna area, 70% of companies in those areas are, are worker cooperatives, you know, and it's just a much more uh, fair and sustainable uh, model to move forward. Well, I think you can see the appeal of that in something like, when you look at something like the Debenhams dispute or the one with Arcadia, where workers have been hung out to dry by ownership. And what you're talking about is a democratic workplace, if you like, a democratic model of ownership of the business where workers have a say in their own, excuse me, yeah. where workers, workers have a say in, in, uh, in, the, in the way a firm is run. Yeah, and, and there's substantially different decisions that are made at board level between a worker co-op and a, a traditional uh, private enterprise. For instance, lots of companies that close down are, are profitable. They just don't make the insane amount of profits that that company wants to make or could be made elsewhere if they move to production or their business. So perhaps if you increase workers' rights in Ireland, if you increase PRSA, if you, PRSI, if you increase the floor at which uh, uh, the business can be run, perhaps it'd be more profitable to move elsewhere. It doesn't mean that couldn't still be sustainable business here. It just wouldn't meet the insane demands that are, that are made currently in certain businesses what you want to establish here are sustainable businesses that provide good quality jobs. And that's possible under the, the worker cooperative model. What do you think is the main barrier? In other words, why Ireland doesn't have the level of cooperative firms that, that you mentioned in Emilio Romana and in Italy and, and, and Scotland, et cetera. If you look at Italy, Spain, France, Scotland, if you look at the development of their co-op sectors, it's always been in tandem with state support, at least support equal to that that they're given to the private sector, and also a strong network of cooperatives, even if it's a small group. Uh, and what you've seen in Ireland is uh, actually uh, the state uh, moving away from the development of cooperatives. So for instance, between 1988 and 2002, there was a cooperative development unit in Ireland. And the data shows that whilst that cooperative development unit was in action, the number of co-ops tripled in Ireland. So, and, and the research that's been done actually shows from uh, cooperatives that engaged with the unit that they said that their help, their support and technical assistance was invaluable. In 2002, the unit was closed. Now you can imagine this is 2002 in Ireland, Fianna Fáil, a government, you know, the high, you know, Kelly Tigers here, their foreign direct investments up, who needs small indigenous businesses? So they're a thing of the past for us. So they closed down the unit. And what you saw in the next 10 years was the number of co-ops dramatically decline in Ireland uh, to I think it's around 33 in 2000, 2008. Uh, so state support isn't, is, is key here, mainly because you're working with ordinary people, ordinary workers who want to collectively own a business. They have the skills to run the cup to, to do the jobs involved in the company, but perhaps they don't have the accountancy skills, perhaps they don't have the legal skills, perhaps they don't have a financial background. All that sort of stuff should be provided by some sort of one-stop shop, one sort of unit that they can set you down with and put you in contact with the, the, you know, the, uh, the correct professionals. So in Scotland, for example, what the Scottish government done was at a roadshow across the entire country where they stopped in towns that they selected and they invited accountants and they invited uh, solicitors and they invited lawyers to come and say to them, we're going to develop this sector over the next couple of years. We want you to become experts in worker cooperative legislation so that when we have a company come towards us, we'll put them in contact with you because you know the system inside out. Because what currently happens is people phone up, you know, a local accountant or a solicitor and say, 
I want to set up this model. And they turn around and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Why don't you do a limited company? Why don't you do, you know, why don't you do a social enterprise or something? Uh, so they're almost, in Ireland, they're almost pushed away from doing the model, discouraged. And if you go to a bank in Ireland and say, I want a loan for a worker cooperative, they'll look at you like you have three heads. They're not interested. They say, it's, is it risky? It, you know, we don't have any other worker cops on our books. Whereas in Scotland, they engaged with the banks, they engaged with chambers of commerce, all this sort of stuff. And they educated people on what the model was. So you, Ireland needs to do a lot of hard work there and actually come showing political will and commitment to developing the model before you'll actually see some see some growth there. Okay, and, and finally, Barry, if I could ask you, is this on the political agenda? Are there parties who are pushing this idea and have developed, developed policies on cooperatives? Yes, uh, uh, Paul Gavin of Sinn Féin has produced uh, two policy papers on worker cooperatives uh, he's also, uh, I believe, uh, uh, developing a piece of legislation on the issue. Uh, Claire Daly also produced a, a bill on the issue. Uh, I think it was 2018 or 2019 that was uh, co-sponsored by uh, Thomas Pringle uh, and Mike Wallace and, and Catherine Connolly. I believe Catherine Connolly has a keen interest in the area of cooperatives uh, as well. And really uh, what a lot of the legislation is about is actually uh, bringing the cooperative legislation into the 21st century it's very old legislation it, it's it, it actually the way it's structured it, it puts uh cooperatives and worker cooperatives at a disadvantage when applying for a lot of funding that other smes would be getting it, it's also just quite old-fashioned archaic in terms of how they go about doing their auditing it's a, it basically there's a lot of obstacles put in the way of cooperatives in ireland that are not there for smes in the, in the private sector uh, and it's about removing a lot of that sort of stuff uh is the political will there uh, in the government? Uh, I know the Greens have spoken about uh, credit unions, a public sector bank, and that's great. And cooperative uh, energy. Cooperative energy uh, is, is a huge area. Uh, will we see it? Hopefully. Okay, well, thanks, Barry, for taking the time today. Ah, no problem. That's it from us this week at A View from the Ditch. I want to thank our guest, Barry Carney. If you want to write to us, it's aviewfromtheditch at gmail.com. And our theme music, as always, was performed by Natalie Nikasija and Irla O'Donnell. Thanks for listening.